0: Hey, my name is Vincent Emanuele, and I am the co founder of Politics, Art, Roots, Culture, and Media. Today, I'm going to be going through the first section of Jane McAlevey's No Shortcuts Organizing for Power in the New Gilded Age. We are going to run through this first section, and as quickly as possible, because I want to make this audio clip as concise and to the point as possible. So we'll start right off and talk about social movement organizations. So here we're thinking about groups like say 350.org or maybe say Black Lives Matter or the Occupy movement. These organizations make the argument that unions are very bureaucratic and sort of undemocratic uh, in their nature, uh, which McLevy is saying, look, at their worst, many of the social movement organizations look just like the dysfunctional non-democratic unions. In my experience, this is true uh, with groups such as Iraq Veterans Against the War and other national political organizations that I've been a part of. There is a sense that is very bureaucratic and, you know, Many of the nonprofit organizations are dysfunctional. Many people would argue by their very design, they're dysfunctional. And they engender this sort of professional class elitism within the organizations itself, something we'll get to. These movements, another point that McAlevey is making is that these movements are often seen as separate from unions and that this is a mistake, that this is a sort of false dichotomy that's been set up between social movements on one side and unions on the other, organized labor. And to be quite honest, there's many false dichotomies uh, in our political discourse. You know, one of them is individuals versus collective. So individual versus collective. You can only have, say one or the other. You know, I think that on its face is quite silly because individuals make up the collective. Community organizing versus workplace organizing, another false dichotomy again to me on its face very clear people who work also live in communities people who live in communities also work so you know the interests carry over from one place to the next and people's identities shift and change depending on the context in which they're in another false dichotomy a bigger sort of false dichotomy that's always set up on the left is this sort of discussion about reform versus revolution that It has to be one or the other and that it can't be both and all of the above. And throughout history, I think we've seen that most successful political movements actually engage in both uh, reformist movements, reformist aims, but also trying to develop institutions and visions that move beyond existing institutions and systems. So for me, it's, you know, those are just a few false dichotomies, some of which McAlevey talks about in the book, but some of which I kind of added for the sake of discussion here today. She's asking two questions in the introduction to No Shortcuts. First, why have unions faltered? And really more broadly, why has the progressive movement faltered? And second, what should we do about it? What must be done to change this? Her hypothesis is threefold. So first, progressives have been losing because we have been through this period of a sort of 45-year shift away from deep organizing to more shallow mobilizing. We'll get to more of this in the second part of this series. Two, that progressives have been losing because of the perceived split between labor and social movements. The very concept that they're separate is a fundamental problem, both in academia and actually on the street organizing. And three, that different approaches to political work will lead to different outcomes. An advocacy approach, for instance, will lead to a different outcome than a mobilizing approach, which will lead to a different outcome than an organizing approach. Again, more on this in the second part we'll go through the differences the taxonomy of advocacy mobilizing and organizing so key for mclevy is having a power structure analysis she brings up a few different examples of people who have talked about power in the american context and more recently say in the last 60 to 70 years Power structure analysis. Okay, so first we have C. Wright Mills. C. Wright Mills writes a book in 1956 called The Power Elite. And that's an account of who rules America really at the national level. What Mills is sort of describing are the connections between the most powerful people and sectors of society. The military, the media, government, corporations, banks, etc. In Mills' view... Uh, there's really very little ordinary people can do to escape this web of power, that ordinary people are sort of at the whim of these major institutions and power players. Then she talks about William Domhoff, who wrote a book, a sort of follow-up to Mill's book. His book was called, or is called, I'm sorry, Who Rules America, and that was published in 1967. And this is an account of how these power structures, how these institutions, these webs and networks of power function at the local and regional level. Still, Domhoff, much like C. Wright Mills, examines only the power that elites hold, not the power that ordinary people may hold. So this is really, for, for McAlevey, the definition of an elite theory of power. And just to back up a second, You know, for McLevy, it's really important that groups, you know, groups should be able to answer the question, what is your theory of power? How does power function? So then McLevy cites Francis Fox Piven and Richard Cloward's book, Poor People's Movements, which was published in 1977. Now, this is an account of how ordinary people express power. McLevy, Piven, and Cloward are all interested in essentially the same thing, and that is how ordinary people wield political power. McLevy asks the question what are the power structures of ordinary people, and how do ordinary people come to understand their own power? That's the key question for McLevy. Again, what are the power structures of ordinary people? So, What are the networks? What are the structures through which ordinary people wield power? What do they look like? And how do ordinary people... So what is the process by which ordinary people come to understand their own political power? Because they're not going to wield it without being conscious of it and conscious of how to use it and build it. So first, however... For those interested in changing society or for those interested in developing better policies, institutions, and so forth, we must examine and chart our opponent's power. We have to chart their social ties and networks, where they hang out, who they know, where they bank, who they fund, how they're funded, who they do business with, how and why. Why would we examine all of that? Because it's going to help us determine who exactly to target during our campaigns and actions. Which institutions will determine whether a campaign strike or action will succeed. So let's go through this a little in a shorter way, or, you know, step by step. So for those who are interested in changing society, we have, in developing better policies, we have to examine and chart our opponent's power. So, we have to chart their social ties and networks, where they hang out, who they know, where they bank, et cetera. So, let's say, and I've seen this in the past, you know, I've seen people who say, I want the minimum wage to be higher. I'm going to, let's put pressure on the mayor. Well, is it true that the mayor has the power to increase your minimum wage? In some states, in some municipalities, that may very well be true. Here, In Indiana, it's not true because it's actually illegal for municipalities to raise the minimum wage above what the minimum wage is at the state level. So if you're, say, a group of workers or if you're a group of, and this is another thing we'll get into in a future section, and that is the differences between what are called self-selected political organizations and structure-based organizing. So let's say you're in a structure, we'll get to these definitions later, but for now, let's just assume that you're some workers at a local retail outlet store or, uh, wherever you live in Indiana. If you want to raise the minimum wage, you have to start thinking about the institutions that can make that happen at the state level. That's the state legislature, uh, you know, in the House and the Senate at the state level. So who is connected to who at that level? You know, who are the most powerful people within each party? Where are they located? What do their districts look like? Which districts are the most strategic districts to hit? Who are the most vulnerable politicians? Who are they connected to? Who funds them? Uh, Maybe we're not going to attack them head on. Maybe we're going to start going after their donors. Maybe we're going to start going after some of their political allies who might be more vulnerable than the people who have decision-making power within those parties. Those are all of the kind of things we would be thinking about when we're thinking about our opponent's power. And again, who are they connected to? Where do they go out to eat? Who do they fund? Are they connected to a Little League baseball team? Um, where do their political opponents spend time? Are they on any non-board of directors or you know, advisory boards for nonprofit organizations? These are the types of things we want to know. I would think of this the best way that I would uh, describe this to you. Uh, any kind of person, just poor working class, ordinary person who's who's listening to this, think of yourself as sort of a political detective. You've all seen the detective shows. You've all seen, and we've all seen the mafia shows. So imagine the FBI agent who's in some dark, smoky room looking at a board with a bunch of names and faces uh, plastered there, uh, sometimes in a sort of pyramid, um, looking at and drawing lines between, okay, who's connected to who, who hangs out with who, who uh, doesn't like who. You know, it's not like everybody, uh, every elite uh, is on the same page. Some of them are not on the same page. Some of them are actually uh, contesting for power at the elite level. Uh, battling each other. So where are they vulnerable? How can we leverage some of their existing disagreements amongst each other? Think of it the same way that an FBI agent would think of, say, taking down the mafia. Somewhat similar. We'll get to some of the differences, but I'm trying to use an example that I think people can relate to. And I know people have, especially in the United States, have watched plenty of police shows, plenty of movies and documentaries about the mafia and, you know, drug cartels and all the rest, biker gangs and so forth. So by doing this, this will determine again who exactly we'll be targeting during our campaigns and actions. Which institutions, again, will determine whether a campaign, a strike, or an action will succeed. So how much power does the Chamber of Commerce have if we're going after the local coal-fired power plant? They have some power. Are they absolutely a linchpin in making sure uh, that that campaign is successful or not? Uh, probably not. What are the institutions that would be? You know, and you can use that for any number of, of uh, examples. So according to McLevy, you know, this step is often skipped or poorly done. So this is sort of the step that people don't do. You know, which leads to failure right out of the box, and I've seen this over and I don't think to give you an example of how far behind we are on the left. I didn't hear of the concept of a power structure analysis until at least 2013 or 2014. That had that's eight years after first becoming involved with political activism. So that'll give you an idea. You know, remember one of McLevy's points. One of her, you know, threefold hypothesis, one of the the first point is that the reason progressive movements have been losing so much in the last 45 years. Yes, we know all about the neoliberal assault. We know all about Reaganism and Thatcher and Bill Clinton and all the rest. We're not getting into all that because we know all of that. Briefly touch on it later. But what we can control, what is within our control is our approach to political work and political organizing and political activism. And because a lot of groups don't have a theory of power, they don't do a power structure analysis. You know, we either skip this step, which you know the groups that I was involved with skipped it for eight years, or if groups do do it, they poorly do it. You know, they don't really dig in deep and and have a really sophisticated, nuanced understanding of power and at many different levels. Understanding who needs to be defeated overcome or persuaded is the key to victory so people have to understand who exactly needs to be defeated who do we have to overcome or who needs to be persuaded those are the keys to victory many groups in fact fail to do the second half of the first step and that's really charting our own power so just as important as it is to chart our opponent's power We have to chart our own power. And this is what could be empowering for ordinary people. So, how do we understand our own power, our own networks, our areas of influence? You know, to pull off a successful strike or an action, we must determine which workers stand together, why they stand together, and how they stand together. So, what are the bonds that bring them together? Why is it that they might feel an affinity towards? each other? How was that affinity? How is that collective identity developed? Those are the kinds of questions organizers should be asking. You know, which key people or workers can sway their peers? How and why? I was having this conversation with some friends the other day, activists. I had told them, you know, think about uh, an organic leader somewhere. You know, we have a limited amount of time and energy as people who are politically engaged. If you're listening to this, you're probably either already engaged or very politically interested in looking to get engaged. Uh, Or you're just someone who stumbled upon this and you're hoping maybe I can persuade you to get engaged. You know, to pull off a successful action, we also have to identify the people who can sway their peers. You know, how are they swaying their peers and why are they swaying them? So if you go to a workplace, you know, say to go to a restaurant... You're gonna have someone at that restaurant who's a worker who's more well respected than other people at that restaurant. They'll probably be the worker that people go to for advice or for help or for scheduling issues or whatever it may be. If you can get that worker on board with your effort, there they might be able to take with a half dozen, a dozen, how who knows how many fellow workers. Well, Understanding who that person is, what moves them, what drives them, who they're connected to, why they're connected to those people, where they hang out, what institutions they spend time in outside of their workplace or outside of the campaign that you're working on. you know, Those are the kind of things that will help you understand how to motivate and bring that person to your side. Thinking, again, like a strategist and an organizer and not like a pundit. You know, Thinking about our own networks. Who do we know? A lot of us spend time in a lot of different areas. We don't even know that we have connections and networks. Churches, workplaces, hobbies, after school, sporting leagues, all kinds of things. So how strong is their support among their peers is another question to ask for organic leaders. You know, some people are going to be more useful in an organizing effort than others. You might have someone that's really hot to trot they have all the pins and buttons and t-shirts on and they love it, And but they can't bring a damn person with them to an event or they can't motivate anyone at their workplace or no one will listen to them. That doesn't mean that person's bad. It doesn't mean that person doesn't have a role to play within the movement. It just means we have to spend our time on other people who might have more influence over their peers. How can organizers determine this? You know, structure tests. The best way we could determine whether or not people are on our side, people are ready to roll with a particular campaign, action, strike, et cetera, uh, is by going through a structure test. We will get to a conversation about structure tests in the second part after we describe advocacy, mobilizing, and organizing. So that'll be in part two. But structure tests are how organizers can determine whether or not this is happening. So who do workers know outside of their workplace? How do they know them? Why do they know them? And how well do they know them? And who do people know outside of the campaign that we're conducting? How, why, and how well? These are the type of questions you should be asking. Okay, now, McLevy argues that progressives failed to do a power structure analysis. And I think this is super important because many progressives already assume what C. Wright Mills assumed, namely that elites will always rule. So progressives have already the sense that, like, okay, shit is bad, the system's rigged, and the best we can do is maybe to get a better elite in power. You know, it's not that we're going to ever change the system or change society fundamentally. We can just hope to kind of tinker around the edges, but fundamentally the elites will always rule. They'll be on top, we'll be on the bottom, and that's just the way it is. Hence the best we can hope for are better elites. That's the view, and I would argue that's the view – a lot of people have, not just progressives. An elite theory of power for well intentioned liberals will lead to an advocacy model. Uh, on the other hand, an elite theory of power for progressives will lead to a mobilizing model. Both models are inadequate. For those of us to the left of liberals and progressives, the organizing model is the only path to true victory. Now, McLevy quotes Marshall Gans here in his definition of strategy. His definition of strategy is turning what we have into what we need to get what we want. So turning what we have, the resources, people, ideas, information, into what we need, the resources, people, ideas, information we need, not what we have now, but what we need to get the things that we want. So how do we get people to understand the what you have part? Which people get to understand this? Because if people don't understand what we have, if the people involved with movements don't understand the what we have part, and a lot of people don't, and people don't get to understand, like who gets to understand this if it's only people at the top? Well, people will fight for what they think they can get. So if people don't understand their own power, and if people don't understand what we're trying to use that power for, or how we could build it or make it stronger to get the things that we want, well, then they'll settle because they'll only think to themselves, well, look, I'll fight for the things that I think we can get, which I would argue is one of the reasons why you'll see people in the streets for Black Lives Matter, why you'll see people in the streets for gay marriage or some of these other issues, abortion rights, because people believe that we can actually win those issues. I would argue you don't see people in the streets around economic issues because people actually don't believe that we can win around those issues. If only professional class leaders are in the room making decisions, this is another important point. Likely because they possess the most knowledge, we are not organizing or bringing mass numbers of ordinary people into the mix. The rank and file of organizations and unions matter just as much as leaders in official positions. This is such an important point. Throughout my time uh, in various national, nonprofit organizations, it became so clear to me that professional class leaders, people with master's degrees and PhDs and all the rest and all the people who go to all the conferences and they make all the right connections so they could get books published by certain publishers, et cetera, et cetera, these people were the ones making key decisions. And they would bring some of us in, some of the rank and file members of the organization, almost as like tokens, you know, the kind of like, give our opinion but it wasn't really going to be registered as a valid opinion very demoralizing especially for people somewhat or you know for someone such as myself I'll use myself as an example who's coming into the movement with not much experience um, but really trying to learn and you know figure this out to the best of my ability in, in an earnest way and really seeing how this played out because I had enough street smarts to look at the situation and go wait a minute the fuck is going on here? These people are making all the decisions and we're the ones who are expected to just follow orders. This reminds me a lot of the military. And the problem was just like the military, I probably would have been more inclined to follow those uh, orders if the people in charge were really bright and had a good sense of what we were doing, but they didn't know what the hell we were doing. So anyway, very important rank and file. You know, They need to know just as much if not more and be more engaged, or just as engaged as people in officials, uh, you know, so-called leader leadership positions. Excuse me, my nose is running like hell. All right. So back to for McLevy, and this is quoting from the book. Large numbers of people transition from unthinking masses. So this gets to the question of how do people actually change? Large numbers of people transition from unthinking masses or the grassroots or the workers to serious and highly invested actors exercising agency when they come to see and they come to understand and to value the power of their own knowledge and networks. So how do people get involved? How do people transition from going from unthinking masses to seriously and highly invested actors and actually making changes in society? When they value their own knowledge and networks and their own power. The chief way to help ordinary people go from object to subject is to teach them about their potential power by involving them as central actors in the process of developing the power structure analysis in their own campaigns. So, ordinary people have to be at the center of developing a power structure analysis. And ordinary people, once they see that power structure analysis, will be able to better understand their own power and that of their opponents. So, again, remember, we're not only charting the power of our opponents, we're also charting our own power. Okay, so an example of this. You know, one example would be, say, people plot their school board president, but they also see that their school board president is a member of, say, again, the Chamber of Commerce or that they sit on the board of directors of a local corporation or nonprofit, so on and so on. By going through that process, ordinary people can see who their potential target is connected to, and then they can see their connections to that target. Hey, turns out I know 20 or 30 people who are connected to this person who has some influence over these institutions that this person from the school board president sits on this board or it goes to this Neighborhood organization or frequent this local bar. Well, those are the that's the kind of knowledge that we want. We also want to know, you know, who are their political allies? How can we put pressure on them? You know, and by charting that out and showing ordinary people, not just by showing them, probably the wrong language to use, by having them participate in that process, it's in, it's empowering and it should be for them. I think this is something. That all of us have to work on. Okay, so for McLevy, people participate to the degree that they understand, but they also understand to the degree that they participate. So the role of the power structure analysis is that it's sort of a mechanism that enables ordinary people to understand their potential power and also allows them to participate meaningfully in making strategy. When people understand the strategy because they helped make it, they will be invested for the long haul, sustained and propelled to achieve more meaningful wins. So again, a lot of this has to do and hinges on our ability to not do things for people, but to empower people with the kind of knowledge that they need so they can start making decisions for themselves. That's what this is all about. That's what good organizing is all about. The challenge with this Is that it might take longer in some contexts than others. And what that means is that we're not doing the really kind of sexy work in between that people so often associate with political activism, you know, or political organizing, being in the streets, causing a ruckus, getting arrested, et cetera. So, three key variables here are crucial to analyzing the potential for success in uh, the change process. First, Power, strategy, and engagement. Three questions must be asked. Is there clear and comprehensive power structure analysis? Does the strategy adopted have any relationship to a power structure analysis? How, if at all, are individuals being approached and engaged in the process, including the power analysis and strategy, not just the resulting collective action? So let's go through this really quickly once again. Is there a clear and co- comprehensive power structure analysis? This is like three questions that must be asked whenever somebody's doing political work. So, first, have you done the power structure analysis? If not, you have to stop right there and do one and do one effectively. And it's easy to do. It's not easy, but it's doable. Second, does the strategy that people have, are they even thinking of a strategy? Would be one question for a lot of activists. But Does the strategy that people have adopted have any relationship to a power structure analysis? If it doesn't, stop right there. Your strategy is not connected to the actual power relations in society. Third, how, if at all, are individuals, ordinary people who are affected by these issues, being approached and engaged in that process, in the processes that we just mentioned, and not just being called to do collective actions? which is the mistake so many groups make, particularly those who mobilize, which again we'll get to in the second part. Most of the biggest victories of the heyday of labor and the civil rights movement have been rolled back or on the verge of getting rolled back. Now, some haven't been rolled back, and namely those are big structural changes. But that's precisely why right-wing movements and institutions target the gains of the labor era and the civil rights era, namely because they post the greatest threat and are now the most common sense. So even people who don't like unions believe children shouldn't work, and that's because of the work of organized labor. Child labor laws are now common sense. The same is true of the right of black people to vote. People might be turned off by Black Lives Matter, but they take for granted the existing common sense concerning some race relations. Doesn't mean it's perfect, we all know. But there are things that progressive movements have gained victories that we've won over the years and the ones that have become the most common sense are during periods that we did really deep organizing and that is in the 1930s and the 1960s when the big structural changes were made but particularly in the 1930s in the labor era elites have rolled back victories and targeted the gains of the labor movement and the civil rights movement by shaping the framework and laws of global trade ushering in a neoliberal era of low taxation, deregulation, privatization, and financialization, a shift away from production in the U.S., but more broadly, the financial sector sort of taking up a larger section, a larger portion of the economy, you know, growing as a total portion of the economy. The right also has attacked and stacked the courts. The war on drugs has targeted black people and Latinos, and the consolidation of the media has exacerbated it all. On top of that, we have U.S. Empire, which has spent trillions of dollars abroad at the expense of a crumbling infrastructure and republic at home. And, of course, Democrats and Republicans are responsible for all of the above. So the reason the previous movements were successful, labor and civil rights movements, is because they understood that change comes through massive numbers of ordinary people sustaining significant disruptions to the status quo, the existing order. That's something that we have to keep in mind, and something that I think too often activists who just want to get out there and for good reasons want to, you know, speak out or fight back on an issue. The only way that we're going to get change is if we get massive numbers of people that can do sustained, significant disruptions to the status quo in the existing order. We have to create a crisis for the elites. And in order to do so, we need an infrastructure, organizations and structures built up enough, sophisticated enough, coherent and cohesive enough, with enough resources, uh, to be able to sustain the kinds of disruptive actions that will force elites to do things they don't want to do. So to finish... MacLevy says, quote, "The chief factor in whether or not organizational efforts grow organically into local or an, and national movements capable of affecting major change is where and with whom the agency for change rests. It is not merely if ordinary people, so often referred to as the grassroots, are engaged, but how, why, and where they are engaged." So I hope people got a lot out of that, and if it was useful, please leave us comments, subscribe to the channel, share with your friends, and if you have replies, please leave them below. Uh, Perhaps I'll respond to them in a future uh, video or audio clip. So again, uh, that was part one of what will be a multiple-part series of examining Jane McAlevey's book, No Shortcuts, Organizing for Power in the New Gilded Age, In part two, we'll talk about the differences. We'll describe advocacy, mobilizing, and organizing, talk about the differences between the three, and we'll also talk about the differences between structure-based organizing and self-selected groups, and maybe we'll even get to structure tests and what they are and how they are used. So take care, and we'll talk to you soon.